Welcome to Fast Fiction. Highlights. It's January. It's Monday. It's school holidays. It's eight thirty a.m. I'm in the shower, shampooing off a hair rinse. The sink is a violent shade of deep brown, which does not even remotely resemble the autumn gold described on the pack. They suggest I use the twenty minutes necessary for the rinse to fix to relax. I have used my relaxing twenty minutes, waiting for the colour to fix by trying to get the stain off the floor, the wash basin, the towel, and myself. The telephone rings. I ignore it. A minute later, it rings again, aggressively. It penetrates my rather moist environment relentlessly. I look around for a clean, dry towel, but settle for a wet, dirty one. There is a trail of water behind me as I make my way to the phone. Hello, my voice is bright and cheerful. After all, a recent survey of my status as a middle-aged, married, working mother in a combined middle-income bracket has informed the nation that I am content and happily adjusted. Hi, Mum. I'm in the hospital, and they want you to sign the form for the operation. I'm speechless. I may well have impersonated a traumatized goldfish. My firstborn has just uttered the two words no mother wants to hear: hospital and operation. I do not panic or become hysterical. After all, I am well adjusted. No, I patiently ask which hospital, what operation, and then follow with an interrogation worthy of any member of the CIB, FBI, or KGB. I finish by asking, "What son in this new millennium of gender equality would be so insensitive as to ring his mother when she is in the shower fixing her hair?" The seventeen-year-old at the other end of the line waits patiently for Vesuvius to stop erupting, then delivers all the information he deems necessary. I'm in the general. I've broken my arm. I fell off the back of a lorry. Convinced that all is now abundantly clear, he rings off. My goldfish impersonation is repeated. What is he doing at the back of a lorry at 8:30 a.m. on a Monday morning? I didn't know he was up, let alone riding on lorries. I tried to recollect when we had last exchanged any communication that two adults would understand. But couldn't get beyond the Neanderthalic grunts that usually served as conversation between us. At this.
this stage in their growth, adolescent boys seem to develop a psyche precluding them from any form of dialogue that contains syntax or logic. I accept this, albeit reluctantly, but constantly worry that within three years they will be able to marry, go to war, and by a legal vote will be able to decide who will govern our country for the next four years. But wait, the fog lifts on some recent interchanges that had not been merely an exercise in trivial pursuit. A few days previously, when his father had yet again reminisced, When I was a lad, we were never given an allowance. We had to work for every cent. Instead of the customary pained interlude, there had been a retort, Yeah, me too. He had got a job. Today was his first day in vacation work. Whilst these recollections are surfacing, I am faster than a stripper in the Antarctic. I break all records amassing clothes, handbag and car keys. I note the promised interesting highlights are beginning to surface in some interesting places, including hands, face and neck. But this is not the time for petty vanities. Quickly I don jeans and sweatshirt, bravely ignoring the remnants of last night's sweet and sour down the front. A pair of sandals, a scarf over my dripping wet hair, and I'm ready. I hop into the mudlark, my faithful E.H. Holden, and I begin to descend the drive. I get tangled in my favourite azalea bush. Damn! Then suddenly, I remember that God, in his graciousness, gave me another son. And now, with the first in jeopardy of losing life and limb, I had best be a little more responsible with the other. Where the hell is he? Ah, yes. He is with his best friend playing fantasy films. <coughs> Look of the thick, dark-rimmed glasses Harry Potter and Ron Weasley are making good use of the garden brooms as they practice Quidditch. When did they grow old enough to branch out from reenacting Bambi? I warn them not to try flight manoeuvres from anything more than three foot high. They nod their heads glumly. To the question, where are you going? I reply, to the hospital. Apparently this response is perfectly adequate for nine and ten year olds. They go back to saving the philosopher stone. Ten minutes later, I am at the hospital and soon in conference with a well-coiffed supervisor who is valiantly attempting to shield the paperwork on her desk from escaping drops of autumn gold. She hands me forms to sign, removing the hospital for any responsibility in case of unforeseen circumstances. There is a paragraph at the bottom dealing with last rites and what to do with the body should unforeseen circumstances arise. Finally, I am taken along to see my son, who cannot possibly be that disgusting, wet and muddy individual lying on the crisp white sheets, still wearing one yellow and one blue thong. Hi, Mum. What took you so long? I take a slow, deep breath, fighting the impulse to commit infanticide in front of witnesses. Ignoring his question, I ply some of my own. 
My voice is shaky and concerned. I am concerned. I am trying to remember if I had turned the water off in the shower and whether or not we are up to date with medical insurance. Using a minimum of decoded speech, my son conveys what had happened. By some miracle, he had got himself to the transit centre by 6.30, the time designated by his new employer. He had joined a group of other young people boarding a utility, which was to take them into the middle of a property from which they were going to pick corn. En route, the vehicle had got stuck in the mud, jolting my son, who was leaning against the tail guard, out of the back. Apparently this was hilarious and created a good deal of mirth. But after a while, the other teenagers had recognised the groans of agony as genuine and measures were quickly taken to transfer him to the local medic. From there, an ambulance had been called to dispense the young patient to hospital and his mother's loving arms. Now that forms had been filled, he was to be x-rayed, CAT scanned and MRI'd, so long as we were adequately covered in a recognisable health scheme. Whilst this narrative is underway, nurses are quietly and efficiently disposing of the mud-encrusted clothing. The centre of attention grins sheepishly as the activities become more intimate and the fuzz-free face begins to glow schoolgirl pink once they get below the waist. He is sponged and clad in a peekaboo theatre gown. With a parting, Doctor will be along soon. The pretty young things deliver their final smile, giggle, <laughs> and disappear. Most of this, however, is lost on my son, who is now pensive and reflective. It's a bummer, isn't it, Mum? He says. It's a big match on tonight. I do not care about the big match, but I am a mother. I recognise the importance of such activities in a mostly male-dominant household. Hospitals move in mysterious ways. Having been firmly directed to the waiting room, I am now convinced he will be returned to me with only one arm, with an apathetic attitude destined to join the ranks of the permanently unemployed, my motherly anxiety only interrupted by the glum thought of how long it might be before he could mow the lawn, and would it seem crass to apply for workers' compensation? As they wheel the recumbent figure out of surgery, I am told the operation has been quite successful. Go home. There is nothing you can do until the anaesthetic wears off. Wearily, I agree. Only now do I remember I have left other life forms at home and that I had completely forgotten to notify his father. Rushing back to the car, I am aware of a note on the windscreen advising me that I am illegally parked. Apparently, such sins may be vindicated by paying the city council $150 for the inconvenience of giving me the note. I file the document at the back of my purse with all the others. Within a few minutes, I am driving through the front gate again and up the drive, vaguely aware that I had run over an army boot. The fight for good over evil had obviously been terminated as hunger had become an incentive to join forces in raiding the pantry. Evidence of an extremely large 
and diversified lunch may be seen scattered over the grass. The two boys are now exploring space from the top of the cottonwood tree. Darth Vader, recognisable by his father's motorbike helmet, is hammering interplanetary missiles, closely resembling unripe passion fruit onto Luke Skywalker, who is wrestling with the elastic on his pyjama pants. Very much aware of the fragility of skeletal frames, my reaction is to eliminate any possible danger immediately. Extending my voice to the full range of X decibels, I convey my concern clearly. Get down from there, you blithering idiots! The result is a gratifying model on managing interplanetary warfare. Darth and Luke become united in a frantic attempt to do as bid. Wearily making my way inside the house, I try rubbing noticeable driblets of autumn gold off the carpet. I hear the telephone ring. I run to answer it. Hello? Hi, hon. I think I forgot to tell you it's a big match on tonight and I've invited some of the fellows over for dinner tonight. That's okay, isn't it? Poor love. He didn't know what Hit him. You have been listening to Highlights, written and read by Brianna Cross.